Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, we kickstart Naked Neuroscience, opening your mind to the nervous system. You can subscribe to this new monthly podcast on iTunes and via the Naked Scientist website. I'm Hannah Critchlow, and we're about to take a journey through the nervous system, finding out how individual bits of nerve cells process information, how whole brain circuits work, and how these findings are unlocking new treatments for patients. We are currently in the middle of a radical change in terms of how we investigate the brain. Over the past few decades, there has been a lot of progress at the top end of our understanding in psychology and brain imaging, seeing which areas of the brain light up when we do a particular task. And also, there's been a great deal of progress at the bottom end in terms of our understanding of genes and molecules in the brain. But there's been a real gap in our understanding in the middle. So there's been an inability to connect what's happening on the level of behaviour with what's going on at the molecular and genetic level. That level of understanding is the level of neural circuits. We speak with somebody who's been trying to fill this gap by zooming in, looking at brain cells or nerve cells or neurons, and finding out how just the branches of these cells, the dendrite, computes input signals. I'm Michael Heuser. I work at University College London. Our work shows that single neurons can solve interesting computational problems. The current dogma has been that information processing is carried out primarily by thousands or millions of neurons working at the network level. And we've shown that the dendrites of neurons, so the receiving elements of input from other cells, can already start to perform some important elementary computations for example, recognizing sequences of input, discriminating patterns of input, and that this process can contribute to processing of sensory information. And by input, you're talking about, for example, if we, when we see something or when we hear something, how it decides what to do with that information next in order to affect our behavior. Right. So the brain is constantly getting bombarded by patterns of input from the outside world through our various senses. And actually, a lot of this input is organized in sequences. For example, speech is organized in patterns, and the brain needs to decode these sequences if it's going to be able to understand the information that's being transmitted. And what we've shown is that already a single dendrite within a single cell can start to decode those sequences of input and do some interesting processing on the input that the cells get from the outside world. And what kind of methodologies do you use in order to try and understand how that dendrite is processing that complicated information that's coming in to our brains? 
So we use two main techniques. We use, first of all, an optical approach to stimulate individual inputs to the dendrites in neurons and brain slices. And the way this works is that we use laser light to very precisely uncage neurotransmitter onto individual dendritic spines, which normally receive the synaptic input from another cell. And this optical approach allows us to play in any pattern of input to the dendrites that we want. It's an incredibly powerful technique. And at the same time, we also did experiments in vivo, so in the intact brain, where we can make electrophysiological recordings directly from the dendrites of cells while they're processing sensory information. And we also have fantastic optical techniques for looking at the structure and also the activity of single neurons and networks of neurons in the intact brain now. This is a technique called two-photon microscopy, and it allows us to visualize single cells in the intact brain while they're actually processing information and then make recordings from those cells to see actually what's going on during the processing. And we can show that already single dendrites can start to read out the sequence of information that's being represented by the pattern of input. And this is very exciting for us because it tells us that even a small piece of a neuron, even a small part of a brain cell, can already do an interesting computation. And it means that there's a tremendous richness in the computational capabilities just of a single brain cell. The experiments in intact animals are in turn showing us that these kind of mechanisms that we've been able to probe are actually engaged during sensory processing. And in particular, we're looking at the visual system and we're showing how these specialized dendritic properties can be engaged when the cell is receiving visual information from the outside world. How can you then use that information to understand more about how the entire brain works? Well, ultimately, we want to understand the neural code. We want to understand how the brain is processing and representing and storing information. And what we've shown is that actually a key element of this process is already taking place on the single cell level and even on the level of single dendrites. And this is going to be very important for trying to understand how the entire brain is representing information and how the neural code is then implemented on the level of single cells. Then, of course, we can take this information and start to see, for example, what goes wrong during disease and potentially also come up with new therapies based on how the neural code operates. So, understanding how a single nerve cell, or how even a small part of a nerve cell, computes information will help us to understand how the brain as a whole works. Another scientist that I caught up with is Professor Corey Bergman from the Rockefeller University, New York, who has been busy watching worms having sex and eating together to find out how genes control flow of information in circuits across the nervous system and regulate behaviour. In my lab, we study a tiny worm called Cenorhabditis elegans. You might find it out in your garden in the compost heap. And the reason we study this little animal instead of studying big animals or people is that 
It has a very simple brain with just 300 neurons, and we can look at its brain while it's behaving, and we can understand what genes are doing to change its brain and its behavior. Now, even though the swarm is very simple, it shares many genes with people, and even some of the genes that it uses for social behaviors are related to the genes that humans use for their social behaviors. So we can use these genes as like a Rosetta Stone to go between different animals and compare behaviors and the biology of behavior. And I'm thinking now about little worms in, in my back garden having social behaviours. Are worms sociable? What kind of social behaviours do they have? Well, one kind of social behaviour that every animal has is reproductive behaviour. They have to find other members of their species and mate with them. And that's one of the behaviours we study is that process of recognition and knowing when you have a mate, carrying out a mating behaviour. Another kind of behaviour they have is that they just like to be together. If you look at them eating, they'd much rather feed together in a group with other worms, even if there's no sex going on at all. And what we found is that that behavior varies based on genes and on the environment. So some worms are very friendly, and they want to spend almost all their time with other worms. And other worms are a little more independent, and they'll spend a lot of time alone and just a little time with worms. And that's based on different genetic mutations that these worms have that make them act differently from each other. And can you see how these genes, these different mutations, then affect how the nerve cells form a a circuit and then how that affects the social behavior? Yes. What we try to do is we try to understand what it is that's changing when the gene changes to allow the behavior to be different. Now, the neural circuit, the worm's brain, develops the same in both cases, and both worms have the potential to show both behaviors. It's just that their likelihood of showing one or the other is different. The sort of threshold that they have to cross to interact with other worms is different. And that happens because the gene that we study strengthens the flow of information through one of two alternative ways that the brain can process social behavior. So the worm is, in a way, ambivalent. It knows that it can either be with other worms or avoid them. And this gene strengthens the flow of traffic in one direction and weakens it in the other direction. It's sort of like a traffic cop that's making information flow to the left or to the right. And this traffic flow that's controlled by this gene, is there, can you see an, a similarity in humans as well? So can you take the information that you're finding out about these genes and the circuits and the behaviour and then apply it to humans? Does it translate? Well, I don't know if it translates exactly to humans, but the general principle does translate to humans. So the kind of gene that we're studying is a molecule called a neuropeptide and a neuropeptide receptor. And they act as chemicals in a short-term way to change flow through neural circuits to allow them to take one or the other pathway to act. Both humans and worms have hundreds of different neuropeptides, and they share some of the same kinds of neuropeptides. Because you have these neuropeptides, your brain doesn't always function in exactly the same way. It can function differently under different circumstances. So, for example, in humans, neuropeptides regulate sleep and stress responses and feeding and hunger, as well as social behaviors. And under each of these conditions, you might be behaving a little bit differently. The neuropeptides are helping to point your behavior in these different directions. And say, for example, people that don't like socially interacting, say, for example, they may 
um, be diagnosed with a disorder such as autism or possibly schizophrenia? Would they have changes in their neuropeptide levels that directs their circuitry to social isolation behaviour? As far as we know, the genetic changes that people with autism and schizophrenia have don't directly affect the neuropeptide systems. But we're trying to understand at a deeper level what kinds of parts of the brain allow social behavior to take place. And we think that those parts of the brain may be functioning differently in people who have autism or schizophrenia compared to um, people who have more typical social interactions. Neuropeptides may be part of that story, but there's a lot more to the social brain than just one kind of molecule. So behavior can change quickly without requiring the growth of new neuronal connections. Instead, Corey Bergman's results in worms suggest that the nervous system is rapidly altered by the expression of neuropeptides. Now, moving from social eating to deciding what exactly we might like to eat. How do we make up our minds? We are continuously faced with choices in life. How do we weigh up our options and make decisions? My name's Matthew Rushworth. I've been giving a lecture today about the prefrontal cortex, focusing on how uh, there are mechanisms in this part of the brain that track how we make decisions and tell us how good it would be to make one choice rather than another choice. This is one of the regions that we think of as being particularly distinctive in humans. Obviously, the types of behaviour that it's associated with are the same sorts of behaviours that we think of as being especially advanced in humans. And how do you study decision-making and choice in this area? So what we do is we give people very simple choices to make, choosing uh, one action or another action in order to earn small numbers of, of points. And while we do that we actually take pictures of the subject's brain using an MRI scanner and we look at the brain regions where the activity is changing as they make those choices. You can actually see different parts of the frontal lobe doing different things. You can see some regions that are comparing together how good it would be to do one thing rather than another thing. There are other regions that are learning and revising the values of different choices as we gather more and more experience of making those choices. And there are even brain regions that are tracking how good it would have been to have done something else other than what we did. And even though we may not be consciously aware of the fact that we're tracking how another course of action may have been, this is going on unconsciously in the brain, do you think? Well, I think that it's something that many people would be aware of uh, when they make a choice. There's uh, some nagging voice in the the back of their mind telling them how good it would have been to have done something else. And I think what we're looking at is the sort of brain correlates of that, the activity in the brain, the pattern of activity in the brain that actually corresponds to that feeling of how good it might have been to have done something different. Do you think at, at some point people might be able to stimulate different parts of the brain using electrical activity um, or, or some other way of stimulating the brain to actually make that decision for you and control your choices? In theory, you might be able to do that, although it would be incredibly complex uh, in order to sort of recreate the very specific patterns of activity that would be associated with one type of choice rather than another. The only thing that I think you might realistically be able to do at the moment might be to induce some degradation 
of the patterns that we normally associate with making a choice. So it is the case that we have various techniques that we can use to stimulate brain activity, even in in, in healthy human subjects without carrying out any type of of brain surgery. But all they allow us to do is to introduce very coarse biases into the way that decisions are made. And rather than changing choices, they just make it slightly more difficult to make choices. So I think the sort of doomsday scenario you've outlined isn't really quite realistic at the moment. So how are your results, how are your findings moving this this field of neuroscience on? There are various ways in which the results that are presented today I think will hopefully change the way in which we think about the frontal lobes. I think they also have uh, some very sort of broad implications for how we think about what happens when decision-making and choice uh, doesn't work properly. So there are many different psychiatric illnesses, for example, where the defining feature is the fact that people make unusual decisions, they make unusual choices, and they don't seem to learn from their experiences in the same way as, as somebody who's healthy does. I'd like to think that some of the brain mechanisms that that we've been investigating would tell us something about what's going wrong in some of these unfortunate cases. How does your research impact on the question of free will? In some ways, I suppose that what we're interested in, in doing is looking at how it is that people exercise their free will. So we're interested in looking at how it is that people make a decision where there's nothing that's actually constraining them to do one thing or another. And we're seeing how patterns of activity are generated in the brain that represent one possible course of action, another possible course of action, and then how these patterns of activity are put in conflict with one another so that the best pattern wins, and that's the choice that we take. So I don't think that it has any implication that we're automatons or that we can't make choices. Instead, it's really trying to do the opposite and trying to explain what's going on when we actually make free choices of our own free will. And that was Dr Matthew Rushworth from Oxford University. Still to come, we find out about the exciting new technologies that are revolutionising psychiatry, providing scientists with the tools to unlock the mysteries of the mind and nervous system and paving the way for better treatments for patients. First up, an exciting new method has hit the labs, combining the power of light, genetic manipulation and microbiology to switch brain and behaviour on or off. Professor Carl Dyseroff from Stanford University explains. This tool is called optogenetics, and it's something we've been working on since 2004. What we found all the way back then was that we could put genes from microorganisms like single-celled algae and ancient forms of bacteria into brain cells, into neurons, and By doing this, we turned the brain cells into a form that we could control them by light. We could actually turn them on or turn them off with pulses of light. And the the way this works is these proteins that we take from microorganisms, they respond to light and they move ions. They move charged particles. Uh, This is, of course, electricity. So what these, these proteins from these microorganisms do is they actually turn light into electricity. Now, electricity is the currency of information flow in the brain, and so what this means is that these unwitting organisms have made for us the perfect tool to turn light into information that the brain understands, and that's an incredibly uh, exciting and thrilling uh, opportunity. 
So you started off by adding this optogenetic trick into nerve cells that are growing in a Petri dish and then seeing how you can switch on different electrical activity from different nerve cells in this Petri dish. What did that tell you? And then can you then move that technique into a live, living, moving animal in order to find out about how these brain activity in particular circuits then goes on to affect behaviour? Yes, well, that exactly was the challenge. So our very first experiments eight years ago were in uh, a dish, as you say, and while they were uh, very interesting, they were not useful at that time. It took uh, a number of years of engineering to make things work well so we could put these proteins, these tools, into living, breathing, behaving, complex mammals Just within the last year, we've made now uh, major applications of optogenetics, as this technology uh, is called, to study, for example, anxiety. We can turn up or down in real time the anxiety-like behaviors of mice. We can make them more or less anxious at will by using optogenetics to turn up or down the activity of a very, very precise, well-defined set of connections in the brain. What is this clever optogenetics technique actually telling us about anxiety in in the mouse? What kind of information is it giving us about the brain? Well, one thing these results tell us is that the brain tunes anxiety in real time. It's not a a chronic state that only changes over days or weeks or months, but that the brain has well-set-up mechanisms to turn anxiety up or down Uh, within seconds. Uh, And this, of course, is important because we know that the treatments for anxiety, many of these act very slowly. They take hours, days, weeks, or even months to to reach their full effect. And this has led to the uh, belief that anxiety might not be something that is regulated in real time by the brain, that it might be a more structural or chronic or unchangeable or only slowly changeable aspect of the brain. In reality, anxiety is something that it seems the brain uh, seeks to regulate in real time as the organism moves from one environment to another. And by identifying a very precise connection that implements this anxiety-related behavioral change, what we've been able to do is really show that there's a, a physical, biological, concrete basis to Anxiety. This is very important for society to know. It's important for patients to know. Uh, after we uh, published the study, I received emails from patients actually around the world who thanked me for just uh, publishing uh, this result, even without there being a path to a cure coming from this, but just the knowledge, the insight, the understanding that anxiety was, was physical and biological uh, was incredibly uh, liberating, uplifting, and and hopeful for these uh, patients. Is there any possibility that we could use this optogenetic technique as a treatment for patients with anxiety, for example? Could you insert fibre optic cable into a particular area of their brains and switch on and off anxiety activities? It is not impossible. Uh, In fact, there's not a fundamental technological barrier to that. We already put objects into people's brains, for example, deep brain stimulation electrodes. 
This technique does require the introduction of genes, but that's already also being done in patients. So in theory, it could be done. I do uh, think it's important to note, though, that that's not the main goal of optogenetics. Optogenetics, by far, uh, has its greatest significance in allowing us to come to an understanding of the brain. Uh, We have so far to go in our insight into the brain, even in normal function, much less in complex and abstract diseases like we see in psychiatry, that uh, we have to understand the normal neural codes that are operating in the brain, and we have to understand how they become dysfunctional. And uh, this is an enormous project, is perfectly suited to optogenetics, and it's something that uh, we're excited to tackle. Insights that come from that might lead to treatments on many fronts. They might lead to better medications. They might lead to better electrode placements for deep brain stimulation. But I think uh, most important of all, it's, it's simply the insight and the understanding. This sort of thing will help reduce stigma. It'll give hope to patients. And, you know, it's got a, an important scientific advance, too. If we understand the diseases better, we understand the normal function better. And this is uh, a lesson biology has taught us. We learn a lot about the normal case by looking at the mutants and the strokes and the failures, and that helps us understand how the whole system actually is working normally. So by combining natural capabilities and genetic techniques, this new technique is opening up our understanding of brain and behaviour and may have impacts for patients as they get to understand their disease a little better. We spoke with somebody who has experienced anxiety to find out more about how anxiety affected him and what he thinks of this research. He wishes to remain anonymous. So my anxiety disorder started when I was about 19 years old and it was primarily triggered by the death of my parents which occurred very close to together. So I think I had about four or five panic attacks which at the time were extremely debilitating. Um, I certainly had one when I was driving. Unfortunately, the reaction of that, which is fairly common to panic attack sufferers, is is to then go through something called contextualized fear, which means that every association you had with that panic attack can come back to haunt you at some point in the future. I did find them very debilitating. I did find the easiest way of dealing with them at that point was effectively talking and the ability to have someone at the end of the phone or the ability to have a conversation that took my mind away from what was happening in terms of the physical and mental symptoms uh, seemed to be very effective in the short term for dealing with those triggers. The panic attacks generally subsided then and uh, certainly didn't take any medication and saw no reason to to consider them more greatly um, as I basically accepted the natural causes as to what was triggering them and understood the stress factor behind it. About eight years ago, my grandfather passed away. That, very strangely, triggered off another set of panic attacks. So this is when I was 29. And this was something that hit me out of the blue. At this time, I was in a very different situation in my life circumstances. I was now very heavily involved in a career, very much needed to have a short-term solution to be able to deal with the panic and really didn't have either the time or necessarily the energy to go back to what the root causes were of that new found panic phobia. So at that point, I decided to seek medical advice. Um, and the doctor that I saw uh, recommended a relatively new treatment for social affected panic disorder or social anxiety disorder called Escocytelepram, or Ciprolex as it's commonly known. And that treatment was extremely effective. The one thing I would say about it is that all anti-anxiety treatments do take some time before they have actual positive effect in terms of making you feel better. And it can take up to six weeks to get to that stage. 
And those six weeks are often fraught with additional feelings of anxiety. But once you hit that balance stage of six weeks, you're then into a mode where the panic is very much kept at bay. The challenge you then have, which I hadn't encountered before or considered, is coming off the escocytopacelatam or, or Fiprolex. Because once you're on it and it's keeping the panic phobia at bay, the natural thing to do now, if you have the time, would be going to take cognitive behavioral therapy or deal with some kind of, of root cause analysis as to what was triggering the panic attacks in the first place. Having said that, reducing from the Ciprolex or coming off the Ciprolex entirely was a very difficult process because if you've taken six weeks to get on it, you then have to reverse that and have six weeks of, of intense anxiety feelings when you're coming off it. So the withdrawal is pretty challenging. So having listened to Carl Dyseroff discussing his new technique where he can actually switch on and off in an instant, you know, within, within seconds, anxiety-like behaviour, admittedly just in mice, is there any information that you can take from that study and use it for your own experiences and to help empower yourself possibly? I think that in itself is a major step forward from where we currently are in terms of our understanding of anxiety. 30% of the UK suffer from panic disorder at some point in their lives. So it's a very common response to the pressures of modern day life and the stresses of, of familiar life. So having that study to be able to actually ad address what the pathways are and actually start dealing with mechanisms in the brain that provide uh, at least some kind of understanding will be, will be very much welcomed by anyone suffering from anxiety. And I'm sure that people who suffer it far more or far worse than I do will very much welcome some progression in this area. When anxiety gets to a fairly serious stage uh, and it's not treated and the person suffering from the, the anxiety disorder doesn't understand the root cause of it or understand the symptoms that they're actually going through, that often that anxiety can start to transition into more challenging feelings around derealization and depersonalization. So I think anything that provides a better understanding into the additional symptoms associated with anxiety uh, is going to provide some, some significant benefits in the long run, uh, hopefully, as part of this study for anxiety sufferers, especially those anxiety sufferers who, perhaps in my, uh, unlike myself, have long-term systemic anxiety, you know, people who literally are um, bound to their house uh, because of often contextualized fear disorder associated with leaving the house. So the ability to switch this off in the short term would be very, very profound in terms of the therapy that that can bring, often when combined with the other therapies that I referred to earlier on. That was somebody who has been affected by anxiety telling us his thoughts on the new optogenetic results informing us on the neural pathways and temporal regulation of anxiety. Christian Lucher from Geneva University, Switzerland, has also been busy using this optogenetics trick to activate brain connections in mice and stimulate communication between nerve cells by causing them to release the chemical dopamine in reward regions of the brain. Why has he been doing this? to find out more about addiction. So we believe that uh, addiction arises from the fact that all addictive substances converge on the reward system to increase the dopamine levels. Once that happens and you take the drug several times over, then you may lose control and become a compulsive user. That is what defines addiction. And dopamine is one of the chemicals, the neurotransmitter chemicals that gets released in the brain that then lights up electrical activity for neighbouring nerve cells. Precisely. So what we really would like to understand are the cellular correlates 
of this transition from a controlled substance use to a compulsive substance use. And we believe that the dopamine, when it increases, changes synaptic transmission, that is, the way nerve cells talk to each other. Experiments lead us to conclude that increasing the activity of the dopamine neurons in the reward system is sufficient to mimic drug-evoked synaptic plasticity. On the other hand, we design protocols which uh, allow us to return to baseline transmission and thus normalizing also the behavior. And this was studies in rodents? Absolutely. These are all studies in mice. So you're combining light, viruses and genetic techniques in order to cause the release of this dopamine in a particular region of the brain in these mice, which then results in their becoming addicted to a particular substance. How do you test their addictive behavior? Obviously, there we have to rely on animal models of addiction, which we know are not perfect models of the human disease. But we can nevertheless use them to study specific elements of addiction. We can, for example, test, can test whether the animal associates the reward with a certain cue. So, for example, when we pair the administration of cocaine with a little light that comes on in the cage, then we see that after prolonged withdrawals, after a month or so, the sheer presentation of the light will induce a strong cocaine-seeking behavior. So this is one of the typical things that you also find in human addicts, that when exposed to a situation that recalls them drug use, will have the craving and relapse. And so at the same time as doing this behavioral test of using a light cue, which will then cause drugs, cocaine-seeking behavior in these mice. You're also tweaking with their brain chemistry by using this light, almost like a robotic light control for the mouse, which causes this dopamine chemical to then be released due to genetic changes of expression. Yeah, one must not confuse the light cue that is a simple light bulb that goes on and the light from the laser that we use to stimulate the neurons. So these are two distinct interventions. And uh, for us, it's important to show that with the laser light, we can actually normalize the transmission between nerve cells and thus restore normal behavior. So what we have seen is that by controlling the activity of the cells in the reward system, we can mimic what addictive drugs do to the brain. That is, when we strongly activate the dopamine neurons in this area, we see drug-adaptive behavior just as we see with cocaine. And moreover, we actually also see that communication between nerve cells is changed, a phenomenon that we call drug-evoked synaptic plasticity. So a possible translation of these findings in basic research would be to design protocols of deep brain stimulation or transcranial magnetic stimulation to treat addiction in humans. That was Dr. Christian Lucia describing how he is investigating the neural basis of addiction. Sticking with electrically stimulating the brain, Professor Damien Dennis at Amsterdam University has been stimulating human brains by inserting electrodes into the brains of patients suffering from severe major depressive disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorders, OCD, eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia, and heroin addiction. A surgical operation is required in order to place this brain-stimulating electrode deep into the reward region of the brain the nucleus accumbens. 
So what we have done now for the last eight years is treated patients with the OCD, uh, nearly 40 patients, so it's a very nice sample. And the effects that we see, I mean, are immense. I mean, we're uh, struck by the huge decrease of symptoms. Um, patients with OCD who, uh, for example, wash their hands, clean the house for 8 to 12, hour, 12 hours a day, within, uh, if you have the good settings, within a few hours, a few days, diminish their symptoms till they wash or clean 15 minutes. So for them, it's a huge improvement. It's a completely new life. So the brain st- stimulation offers us an opportunity in psychiatry to treat the, these very, very ill patients who were refractory and had no other option than dying. And which particular region in the brain are you actually electrically activating with these stimulators? So there are different targets, of course, um, depending on the group and their historical backgrounds. But in Amsterdam, we target the electrodes at the nucleus accumbens, the core of the accumbens. Um, we think that the electrodes activate axons, so white matter. So we're changing the circuitry. It's not just the brain area. It's the whole circuitry, and it encompasses as well the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, dorsal prefrontal cortex, and so on. So it changes the electrical activity within the circuit. It rebalances a dysfunctional circuit. We're talking about electrical activity, but just for a comparison, you know, how much is it compared to the mains electric, say, for example, 240 volts? Is it, is it as much as that? No, no, it's much, much smaller. It's not, nothing compared to electricity as we used to it in our houses or even electroconvulsive therapy. We talk about very small pulses, so short periods of time, microseconds of pulses of small voltages. So we talk about 1 volt, 2 volt, 3.5 volt voltage, and we give it at a frequency of 180 times a second Uh, within small pulses. And how quickly do you start to see the behavioural changes in these patients that have had symptoms for so long? I mean, such, such severe symptoms for so long. One of the most fascinating things is that if you have the good electrodes with the good target, so this is crucial, of course, you need to be at a good target, and you have found the good variables, the good settings, because you can change the voltage and the pulse width and the frequency. So, But if you have found them, you can see improvement within seconds and minutes. You see that anxiety decreases, that mood improves, patients get more motivated, have other sensory experiences, they experience light differently, colors and so on, and uh, after a while, obsessions decrease and eventually compulsions completely um, uh, vanish. And then if you stop this electric pulse coming, uh, being emitted from the electrodes in the nucleus accumbens, then do the original behaviours of obsessive compulsive disorder or depression and anxiety, do they return immediately? Yes, the the symptoms return immediately once you stop the electrical activation. uh, You see that patients have a huge rebound effect. They relapse and they, again, experience huge uh, amounts of anxiety. Uh, The the depression comes again back. So uh, one issue, of course, is the battery life. When the battery goes down, you see that the symptoms come back. So we have to deliver continuous electrical stimulation to these patients, once they have an electrode implanted in their brain, to have these effects They need to to be uh, electrically activated for the rest of their lives. Can you talk a bit more about some of the patients that you've treated that have suffered from addiction? 
Addiction is, is one of the new indications. It's a, maybe a bit controversial because some, for some people addiction is not a psychiatric disorder. But uh, to us, I mean, it's a brain disorder and therefore we thought it was a good indication for, for the brain stimulation. So we started with a patient uh, with a very severe heroin addiction for 20, 30 years. It was a guy who took on a daily basis heroin. We activated the same circuitry as in OCD, an obsessive compulsive disorder. And uh, within a few months, we saw that the patient had no hedonia uh, while he used heroin and after a while even the craving completely uh, stopped so we were I mean uh, successful in, in stopping his heroin addiction within I think six or eight months and now he's uh, not using so it looks uh, very promising yeah and this is quite interesting as well isn't it so you're adding an electrode to exactly the same region of the brain activating the same circuit and and yet you're treating obsessive-compulsive disorder, addiction, and major depressive disorder as well. That's indeed very interesting. It shows that the brain works differently. So it's not that we have these psychiatric disorders and that they're associated with several different brain areas, like all small islands. No, we have a, a very important brain circuitry, like the cortical striatal circuitry, with all these major brain areas involved. And in our opinion, it's that the, the, the typical psychiatric disorders are associated with different dysfunctions of one and the same circuitry. So by changing with DBS, the electrical activity, we can rebalance patients with MDD, uh, with OCD and addiction, but we need different voltages. For example, with MDD, major depressive disorder, we need higher voltages, and it's, it takes more time to stabilize them. With OCD, uh, voltages are a bit lower, 3.5, and they're easier to stabilize. And with addiction, we even need lower, I mean, the most lower voltage of 2.5 volts. And just thinking now about the ethical implications of electrodes being inserted into your brain. I mean, some people might think that that's actually... Well, it is. It's changing your brain activity. It's changing your personality. It's changing your very self. Is it any different from having a hip replacement? You know, is, are, what are the ethical implications that we have to think about with this new technology that is being tested right now. Uh, DBS has a huge impact on how we experience ourselves. Essentially, psychiatric disorders are more related to our own identity, how we perceive ourselves, how we function in the world. So obviously, when you change these disorders and um, give patients a, a new life, you change identity and the self. So this raises important ethical issues that we should think about. So what happens when you, uh, for example, within a month change of very depressed patient into a normal patient how will he cope with his family again how will he experience his own life and his identity sometimes they change a little bit so these ethical issues are very important we should take them in account all the time particularly with the history of psychosurgery and psychiatry in the past it's an ongoing duty for any psychiatrist doctor to think about ethics and to involve as well the family in the treatment process so, deep brain stimulation techniques are providing great improvements for the lives of patients taking part in these trials. But this new technology also raises ethical questions regarding what self and personality are. Moving on to another emerging treatment for psychiatry. You may not think that changes in behaviour and psychiatric illnesses might be linked to your immune system. But Dr Esther de Graaf has, over the last few years, been accruing evidence that antibodies, the frontline soldiers of your immune system helping in the battle against infection, might start to mistakenly attack your own brain and affect your behaviour. 
So I myself only started this research like three years ago. And for me, it was completely new that you could have like an autoimmune disease that recognizes a protein uh, in the brain. It crosses the blood-brain barrier, and that way it can shut down the function of this protein, thereby getting effects on the synapse and on the functioning of the neurons. Basically, patients with this autoimmune disease have antibodies in their serum or in their uh, cerebral spinal fluid, a particular group of patients that have ataxia, so involuntary movements. And we identified antibodies in the serum of these patients which recognize uh, basically cells in their cerebellum that's involved in coordinating movement. And we've identified using the serum of these patients which protein they specifically identify. And that helps us to perform better diagnosis for the patients so they can start treatment earlier, which means that the effects on their illness are uh, less. So you've identified that there's a particular antibody that's attacking cerebellum protein. What does this protein, what's it meant to be doing in a healthy functioning person? So that's the interesting part that's not really known. It's a protein expressed at the membranes and it's thought to interact with a protein expressed on neighboring cells like the glia cells that support these uh, neurons. And we've tried to see if adding these antibodies disrupt this function. Uh, We actually think that the immune system itself, so the immune cells, target these cells and thereby kill them because they are recognized as body-strange proteins or body-strange cells, and therefore they are killed, which also means that the patients, even though we can treat them by giving immunosuppression, we knock down the immune system, they do not recover. They don't get worse, but they do not recover, probably because they've lost the cells. And there's another group of patients. It's the patients that have antibodies against the NMDA receptor. So it's a protein highly expressed and very important for normal synaptic functioning uh, in the nervous system. And basically, it's, it's the molecule that's important for communication between uh, the, the synapses and between the neurons. And if you, if you knock out that protein, there is no more communication. And patients can, from being absolutely normal, go through a period where in two weeks' time they get psychotic, they get uh, memory loss, and then one or two weeks later they can have coma. And that surprised me how, how rapid that can progress uh, to being bad. But fortunately, this group of patients, where you do immunosuppressant, you remove the antibodies again from the serum or from the cerebral spinal fluid, they can fully recover. Also, the earlier you start the treatment with the patients, the better the prognosis is for the treatment. So that's a very important group to investigate. So these patients, why are they producing this antibody in the first place? So a lot of these patients are young women, and in over half of them we've identified tumors in the ovary. And these tumors in the ovary can become any tissue type, including neurons. And they suddenly start to express this NMDA receptor protein. And so the immune system has never seen these proteins before in the ovary, also not in the brain because there's the blood-brain barrier, so it's not detected. Now suddenly they see this protein in the ovary, Uh, They start producing the antibodies, and these antibodies can, due to something we still don't understand, uh, also cross the blood-bane barrier, identifies these NMDA receptors in the hippocampus, and thereby shutting down the communication between the neurons in the brain, leading to, amongst others, uh, psychosis, psychiatric features, and coma. And so you immunosuppressed patients that had these tumors in their ovaries, and then what happened? Most of them fully recover. If we find a tumor, we also remove the tumor because otherwise they keep producing these antibodies. If we block the immune system from that point, they will stop producing the NMDA receptor antibodies and therefore the neurons will have time again to produce normal protein. 
basically normal function is restored. In some cases, so approximately 20% of the patients, we find that they, they cannot fully recover, so they will have some cognitive uh, defect. The earlier we start the treatment, the better the prognosis for the patient is. And could you use these findings to help with the diagnosis of particular illnesses as well? It surely helps. So if now a patient comes in a psychiatry ward with the symptoms of more or less subacute psychosis, it's best to just isolate serum. And now knowing that most of them are identifying the NMDA receptor, or you can very quickly screen within one or two days that indeed uh, they have antibodies against this protein and that it is an immune disorder that's causing the psychosis. Whereas if you have no idea whether it's a psychosis because of genetic background or something that happened in the environment, it's a bit silly to start doing the uh, immunosuppressant because it's quite an an intensive therapy as well. So it helps to specify that indeed it's an autoimmune disorder, so immune system attacking the cells, and you can then do the immune suppression uh, therapy. So this is a potential new diagnosis and treatment regime for for psychiatry. Would you say that that's the biggest implication for these results? Uh, I certainly think it is, yes. It's it's another way of looking at psychiatric patients, and it's it's very important also that psychiatrists and neurologists get to know about this disorder because it's there, and it, it is treatable as long as it's diagnosed early enough. So I would definitely say this is a very important step towards that. So in in finding these psychiatric patients, uh, we've now also grown the idea that uh, other other psychiatric disorders, such as schizophrenia, uh, postpartum uh, pregnancies or depression, these women, they develop these depressions like two weeks after they give birth, which is kind of in the time frame of it being an immune reaction. So we really would love to uh, study the serum and and cerebrospinal fluid of these patients as well to see if they can explain at least a certain percentage of these schizophrenic patients or other psychiatric disorders. Dr Esther de Graaf from Utrecht University. Another technology has been developed, this one offering a quick, inexpensive and accurate way of diagnosing learning difficulty disorders. This new genetic screening technique can be performed early on in life to help patients get the right diagnosis, treatment regimes and to help expectant parents prepare. Dr Joris Veltman from Radboud University, the Netherlands, explains what the problems were with genetic screening for learning disability and how he's making headway with this conundrum. Well, what you have to imagine that our genome is very big. So it's about 6 billion uh, nucleotides, and mutations in any one of these nucleotides can cause disease. So, uh, so far, we were only able to look at about one gene at a time in a patient with a genetic disease. So we really had to to look and think about very hard what gene to test. Uh, And the problem is that, especially with the more common forms of of intellectual disability or autism, it really, it may be about 1,000 genes or so that can be mutated because, you know, really many genes play a role in our our brain. So we, we really could not look at this. Um, and now uh, we have technology that allows us to, to uh, look at, at, let's say, variation uh, uh, in all of our genes. And that is really uh, allowing us to really look at, at, at mutations that can cause disease. And really we are now starting to identify the genes that can cause uh, intellectual disability in a, a really much faster way than we ever could before. And how does this new technology, this less time-consuming and less laborious technology actually work? How is it that you're, you're able to do it so much more quickly now? 
So there is actually two approaches. So what we, um, uh, what we do in the laboratory is we take the DNA from a patient, isolated from blood, and then we can actually enrich this DNA. So we fish out the 1% of the genome that is coding for protein. So those are, those are the parts that we look at at this moment. And after we've fished out this 1% of the DNA, we actually uh, put it uh, uh, into these, these, these next-generation sequencing uh, machines. These are really machines in which um, millions of, of DNA fragments can be sequenced at the same time, uh, and they've been developed by all kinds of companies, and they really have speed up the, the, the whole DNA sequencing process. So that allows us to, with a, say, within a week, we can actually, from taking the DNA of the patient to having information about uh, all of the variation in, in all genes. Joris then compares the patient's genes with their unaffected parents' genes, since a large number of learning disability conditions are due to mutations occurring in the DNA of germlines, so in the parent's sperm or egg. The resultant child will contain the mutation, but the parents will not. This method is not only helping to diagnose children with learning disabilities, but it's also helping to identify novel genes associated with disorders. And it turns out that males, in particular, are more likely to produce learning disability mutations than women. And, as men get older, they are more likely to have a higher number of de novo mutations in their sperm, which will then be passed on to their child. So, one of the messages from this research, guys, perhaps don't leave it too late before you start reproducing. Now, to close this Naked Neuroscience special, we take a trip and answer a question in from a faraway listener. Hello, Naked Scientists. My name is Ricardo and I'm from Brazil. I want to know, is that true that magic mushrooms have a flashback effect? Uh, is that story true or is just things mom tells us to keep the distance? Thank you so much. So how long-lasting are the psychedelic associations of magic mushrooms? We call up David Nutt, Professor of Psychopharmacology at Imperial College London. Now, magic mushrooms are uh, basic mushrooms which contain a, a psychoactive substance called psilocybin, which is a short-acting psychedelic drug. And psychedelics produce changes in brain function, particularly they produce distortions of vision and hearing, often with associated uh, imagery, particularly very vivid geometrical colors. And they can also produce changes in feeling and emotions as well, and some people find them very appealing and others can have what's called a bad trip and find it a bit distressing. So the question of flashbacks is one that's been around for a long time with psychedelics. And undoubtedly, some people do get a sense of re-emergence of these symptoms after the, uh, or experiences after the drugs have been uh, cleared from their body, which in the case of magic mushrooms is, you know, just uh, 20 minutes or so. And we don't really know what they're due to. We think it may be due to some kind of memory of the experience. We know that psychedelics can produce quite long-lasting, profound changes in people's mood and and beliefs and behaviors. So it might be part of that, that learning process. It might be some adaptation in the serotonin system, which is what these drugs work on, which produces uh, some kind of rather enduring alteration in function of the sensory system, particularly the visual sensory systems. And by and large, they don't cause a lot of disruption, um, and people should just, if they ha you do have them, don't worry, they're not a sign of brain damage, they're a sign of that you've had an experience. And Usually, they just attenuate over the next uh, few months and disappear. Occasionally, people do have them persisting. They're, this, we think, is related to people being very anxious about the experience. We're not entirely clear what we can do about those. It's certainly one of the reasons why people should be very cautious in using any kind of drug because of the enduring effects. 
But as far as we know, they don't reflect any major disturbance to brain function. And can magic mushrooms information offer up new treatments for patients? Back to David. So psilocybin, like other psychedelics, works through stimulating the 5-HT or serotonin 2A receptor. Of course, one of the interesting questions, and that's one of the fundamental question, is why would that receptor mediate these effects? It's a fascinating issue, so particularly because people have thought, well, maybe if these drugs can cause this effect through this receptor, maybe serotonin itself can produce this effect through the receptor, and therefore that may explain conditions like uh, schizophrenia or psychosis. In fact, there's been quite a lot of development of drugs which block the 5-HC2A receptor as possible antipsychotics. And it, it, it's looking as though it may be an element of psychosis. Some aspects of psychosis are mediated through the 2A receptor. But the, but the sort of strange issue is also why, when we increase serotonin with, with drugs, for instance, like the antidepressants, SSRIs, why we don't get these kind of psychedelic experiences. That, that's not understood. And it's one of the, one of the interesting and necessary questions that uh, people working in this field, such as my own group at present, are trying to answer. So thank you, Rick, from Brazil, for sending us your perceptive question. We next open our ears to crunch a data question just downloaded from the Naked Scientist inbox. Hi, I'm Dan from Malvern. Lovely podcast. Uh, I have uh, a telephone line coming into the house, two twisted wires, as everybody else does around here. How is it possible for a, a telephone conversation, a download to one or two computers, and someone else listening to a program and maybe even watching BBC News, how, how does that all happen at the same time? be interested to know the answer to that. Send us your thoughts. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, email chris at the Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Thanks to all of our speakers, Michael Heuser, Corey Bergman, Matthew Rushworth, Carl Dyseroff, Christian Lucia, Damien Denise, Esther DeGraff, Joris Feltman and David Nutt. If you'd like to find out more about the brain and the nervous system, then our brand new and free Naked Neuroscience Strand may be for you. You can listen in by subscribing on iTunes or by visiting thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.